everyone, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can support them, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. And this is a significant month for this podcast, since, as I mentioned on Twitter, this month is the fifth anniversary of the beginning of historian explaining. So it seems like the time has flown by, but it's already been five years that I've been putting out this podcast, and it's gradually gained more followers, listeners, supporters. Again, as I said on Twitter to those who saw it, it's been a very slow progression and long climb, and it's just now getting to the point where I almost can actually make a living income off of this podcast, but, uh, you know, it's taken a lot of time and a lot of work. So please, again, if you can help keep this coming, make it worth the time and the labor, go to my Patreon page, become a supporter at any level. It's very valued and appreciated. And also just post, tell friends, review on Apple Podcasts. All of that is great and very much appreciated. It's also a significant month, additionally, because... April is usually the time when the holidays of Passover, the Jewish holiday of Passover, and the related Christian holidays of Good Friday and Easter are celebrated. So it's very appropriate, I think, now to be putting out this newest myth of the month, number 19, on the Holy Grail which is a very famous mythical object that at its root is closely connected to those myths and rituals of Passover, the story of the Last Supper, and the Passion of Christ, and Easter. And I was hoping I might be able to put this out before Easter, but I missed the boat on that. So people in the Western Christian religion just recently celebrated Easter. I think the Eastern Orthodox Easter is still coming up. And for Jews, it is still Passover right now as I speak. It's still part of the eight-day festival of Passover. So all of those connections will come into play when talking about the Holy Grail. But I was not able to complete this sooner because I found there is so much to say about the Holy Grail. It is such a complex object entwined with so many associations, so many stories, so much deep symbolism. And I have lectured before about the legends of King Arthur and Camelot, or the so-called Matter of Britain, as that King Arthur cycle was called in the Middle Ages. And I have discussed a little bit the role that the quest for the Holy Grail plays in that mythos. And you can look back at my uh, Myth of the Month 12 series about the King Arthur mythos. I also talked a little bit about Arthuriana when I discussed the Green Knight. But it might seem a little redundant then why I would go and talk again about the Holy Grail on its own. And probably this will be two lectures. This first one, I'll talk about the medieval legends of the Holy Grail, and then I think I'll have to have a whole other one to talk about the modern evolution and interpretation of the Grail myth. So this might seem very redundant, but really the Grail is unique in the sense that it is the only entity that appears in the Arthur legends that has then taken on a life of its own. 
So unlike iconic people or objects or events in the Arthur mythology like Merlin or Camelot or Excalibur, the Grail has transcended the bounds of the Arthur mythos. And at least in some people's views, it has even entered, crossed over and entered into the real world as a putatively real historical object. So it's the one that has kind of taken off and and really to a, an increasing degree in recent years has separated itself from the Arthur mythology and is now kind of its own independent center with its own evolving mythos. And all in all, I think one could say that the Holy Grail is probably the most famous object in all of Western history. There is no other single object you can point to that conjures up so many stories, feelings, associations, that is bound up with its own entire web of characters and of, as I said, emotions, emotions of longing, awe, and mystery. It's the object of endless stories in all media, and now also it is the object of endless theories, theories of varying degrees of credibility or logic about what it is, where it came from, what its nature is, and where it went. And this incredible iconic status on one level is ironic because it probably never really existed, right? How isn't it strange that probably the most famous object that one can simply call to mind with a few short syllables probably never really existed in the first place, except in this the most bare literal sense that it existed by definition in the limited sense that the Holy Grail is taken to just refer to a dish or vessel of some sort used by Jesus at the Last Supper. Probably there was such a thing, but most likely it was just a simple, typical wood or ceramic dish, which was long ago discarded and probably lies in pieces in some midden heap somewhere near Jerusalem. So the Holy Grail is really famous not as a literal object that anyone can point to or hold, but it is famous rather as a symbol or a metaphor with complex and mysterious meanings. The Holy Grail is a great enigma, and its putative meanings have evolved through the centuries. Now, it of course exists today in popular consciousness and popular talk as a metaphor, usually as a metaphor for the highest, most rarefied goal that one can imagine, a sort of great, overarching, and almost unattainable goal. And it is sometimes associated with great power and achievement. And as I was researching about the Holy Grail a few weeks ago, I saw a little commentary report by a political commentator who was talking about the recent unionizing drive at Amazon. And she was complaining that mainstream mass media weren't talking enough about this event. And she complained, you know, come on, guys, you should be reporting about this. Quote, Amazon is the holy grail of labor organizing. And of course, she didn't have to explain what she meant by that reference. That sort of phraseology is now embedded into the English language and increasingly into other European languages too, French, German, Spanish. And sometimes more specifically, the Holy Grail is also associated with the idea of perfection, something that is more perfect 
than anything else on earth and cannot be improved upon. And I found an interesting instance of that in the title of a book by the sports reporter Joe Cox, who wrote about pitching in baseball, the constant mission to improve one's pitching, to reach sort of the highest attainment. The title of his book is, quote, Almost Perfect, The Heartbreaking Pursuit of Pitching's Holy Grail. And if you're a baseball fan, you probably know right away what he's talking about. He's talking about pitching a perfect game, a game where no batter reaches base. So there are no base hits and no walks. And a perfect game has only occurred 23 times in the 140-year history of professional baseball. So it is something almost mind-bogglingly rarefied, and impossible to foresee, impossible to control or predict. It's a level of perfection that even the greatest pitchers usually never attain. And that sort of weight and gravity is captured, again, in just this simple phrase, holy grail. And in both cases, case about political, the political commentator talking about the Amazon organizing drive, or the sports reporter talking about the perfect game. In both cases, it's something distant, almost forbidding, but that very rarely, at very rare special moments, can be encountered. And this usage of the phrase Holy Grail has now, as I said, been really integrated into ordinary English talk. And it has, it seems from statistics, it's only becoming more common in recent years. And that might be related to the current popularity and sort of surfacing into pop culture of what used to be fringe theories about the Holy Grail that you see in places like Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and of course the Da Vinci Code. Now, another enormous irony of the Holy Grail is that while it is so deeply ingrained now in our mythology and our everyday talk, if you ask people what it is, most will hardly know anything about it at all. What does it look like? What is it made of? What is its nature, its properties, its powers? And what makes it so valuable above and beyond any number of other holy relics connected to the saints or to Christ himself? And most would basically tell you a sort of set of ideas or associations with the grail, which maybe have already come to your mind as I bring it up right now. The notion it is a wine cup or chalice, that Christ used this cup or chalice at the Last Supper, and that it also then was used to hold blood from Christ's body when he was on the cross, and that it has a sort of miraculous or magical power, that if one drinks from it, one can gain restored youth or immortality. But, as you probably anticipate I'm about to drop, if one looks back to the original legends of the Holy Grail, as they emerged in the High Middle Ages, connected to the Arthur mythos, none of those things are true. It is not a cup or a chalice. It did not hold wine. Nobody drinks from it, and while it does have a healing power, it does not give bodily immortality. So the modern version of the Holy Grail that we are conversant with today is very distinct, and it is entirely different in both spirit and symbolism 
from the grail that emerged in the Arthurian legends in the High Middle Ages. And I'm going to eventually try to talk about some of the possible reasons why it changed so completely from the Middle Ages to today. The story of the Grail and the quest to attain the Grail emerged in a series of romances in both verse and prose, written mainly in French and some in German, right at the height of the High Middle Ages, basically in a fairly short period of time between about 1180 and 1240, so no more than 60 years at most. That is when the idea and the stories of the Grail exploded, at least as far as we can trace them in writing. So what I'm going to try to do in these most likely two lectures about the Holy Grail is first summarize the original early legends in which the Grail first appeared in writing, discuss the patterns and connections among these Grail stories, and the distinctive features of the Grail legends that definitely set them apart as different from other Arthur tales, and that then point towards the special nature and meanings of the Grail to the people who wrote about it back then in this sort of initial flowering of Grail literature. Then I'll trace how the nature and symbolism of the Grail has changed from the later Middle Ages up to today, including pop culture, modern pop culture representations and stories of the Grail, and efforts to locate the supposed real grail on the assumption that it was a real historical thing. I'll then discuss the different interpretations of the supposed hidden or esoteric meaning of the grail legend. And lastly, I'll briefly put forward my own observations about the historical context and symbolic meaning of the holy grail. So I will just add my own two cents at the end. But what I expect I'll do in this first lecture is simply explain what did those medieval legends in the 11 and 1200s actually say about the Holy Grail and the people who sought it, and what does that tell us about the original meaning and symbolism of the Holy Grail. So the first document that's ever been found that talks about a grail that is somehow precious, holy, sacred, and that is the object of a mystery and a quest. The first one is a story, an incomplete verse romance, written in the late 1100s, probably about 1180, by a writer named Chrétien de Troyes. And he titled this manuscript Comte del Graal or Comte du Graal, meaning simply the story of the grail, and sometimes also it was titled or labeled as Perceval or Percival after the main hero of the story. So it was written by Chrétien de Troyes, who was already by this time a fairly well-known and prolific writer of romances about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. So he had written about Lancelot, such as in the, the Knight in the Cart, about Lancelot and Guinevere. And now he turned to writing this enigmatic and incomplete story, Comte del Graal. We don't have any documents telling us about precisely who Chrétien de Troyes 
was. But he clearly was French and he wrote in northern French and he probably was from the town of Troyes in Champagne in northeastern France. And he wrote most of his works in the 1160s and 70s and the dedications show that he worked for aristocratic patrons around northeastern France, including at one point the Countess of Champagne. And it seems that his that this Conte del Graal written around 1180, was his final work. And this unfinished story is the first one, as I said, to mention a quest for a grail. And he wrote about 9,000 lines of it, and it evidently was left unfinished. And the patron who was supporting him, at least when he began writing this story, was Philip the Count of Flanders, so a, in, an autonomous region up in what's now Belgium, but at that time was at least nominally subject to France. So in this Conte del Graal, what does it actually say and what's it about? Well, it follows a young man called Percival in French, or we say Percival in English, and Percival is odd. He's kind of an odd man out as far as the Arthurian knights. He was raised in the woods in isolation by his mother, and he had a, his father and elder brothers had already died while going off on chivalric adventures. And so for this reason, his mother wants to raise him in a sheltered way, away from that world of warfare and chivalry. And he grows up to be an impulsive and reckless youth. And he goes out and frequently engages in fights and escapades anyway, despite his, against his mother's wishes, and without knowing and internalizing the norms of chivalry. So you could say it's sort of the worst of both worlds. And at one point, he's off on one of his ill-advised escapades, and he encounters a group of knights. And he's awed by them, their, their dignity, their majesty, their shining armor. And he thinks that they are angels. And so he resolves to become a knight himself. So his mother's attempt to shelter him from that world has failed. He goes off to Camelot with the goal of becoming a knight, but he is mocked and rejected, right? He's, he's green, naive, impulsive, and he rides off embittered, but still determined to become a knight. He's able to find an old nobleman who then gives him some training and instruction, sort of starts to educate him in the art and ethic of chivalry. And he eventually has a partly successful adventure where he helps to defend a castle of maidens against an attacker. And he clearly is enamored with the lady of this castle named Blanchefleur. And at one point when the castle is in danger, he sleeps with her, meaning they, they actually literally sleep in the same bed together to keep her feeling safe and comfortable, but he refrains from having sex. So this is sort of his step forward in becoming a more sh a gentleman, right? Now, the quest that actually ends up consuming the rest of his life is the quest for the Grail. And it seems at first that he steps into that quest entirely by accident. So after defending Blanchefleur's castle, he resolves to set out and visit his mother. So he's traveling through sort of forest and wild lands to try to get to his birthplace. But on the way, he finds that he is blocked by a very wide river. 
and he doesn't know what to do. And a fisherman in the river tells him that it's not going to be possible for him to ford the river with his horse. There is no easy crossing anywhere nearby. And he advises Percival instead to go uphill to the top of a nearby promontory from which he will then see a house where he will be accepted and he can take shelter. So Percival does so. He goes up to this vantage point, but at first he sees nothing at all, only wilderness and woods, and he gets angry. But then he notices a tower hidden down in a deep valley, just peeking above the tree line. And he changes his mind and says, I suppose that fisherman was telling the truth. And he rides down into this deep low valley and approaches this tower. And he finds that it is part of a large gated and moated complex set into the middle of a low flat expanse. So there's actually sort of a wide bowl valley there. He is allowed in, the drawbridge is lowered, he's allowed into the castle complex, and he is disarmed and given a chamber. And after he sort of dresses himself in the chamber, he is then led into a great hall to dine with the lord of the castle, who seems to be a wealthy king. So he's led into a large, sumptuous hall, arranged around a big, roaring central fire with a bronze chimney above it. So there's warmth, there seems to be wealth, and he approaches a handsome, gray-haired lord who is dressed in black and who is reclining, leaning on his elbow on a long couch. And this lord greets Percival warmly and kindly, apologizes that he cannot get up to greet him, and he insists that Percival sit down beside him on the bed with him, and they engage in some kind small talk. You know, where did you come from? You must have ridden a long way, that sort of thing. While they are sitting and reclining there on this couch, waiting for food, a servant comes in from a side chamber, bringing a beautiful sword in a scabbard with gold work on its handle. The Lord then presents this sword to Percival and says that he was meant to have it. Percival is overawed, of course, by the excessive hospitality and generosity of this Lord and his people, his servants. And he passes the sword off to servants for safekeeping, and then they resume their chatting. Now, when they're chatting and waiting, a procession begins where five servants come in through a side doorway. So this passage in Percival, or Le Conte du Graal, is famous because it's been read and reread and analyzed so many times, trying to find exactly what it means or represents. So I'm going to read this passage from a modern English prose translation, which as far as I can tell is by Richard Barber. While they were talking of one thing and another, a boy came from a chamber clutching a white lance by the middle of the shaft and passed between the fire and the two who were sitting on the bed. Everyone in the hall saw the white lance with its white head and a drop of blood issued from the tip of the lance's head and right down to the boy's hand this red drop ran. The Lord's guest gazed at this marvel that had appeared there that night, but restrained himself from asking how it came to be, because he remembered the advice of the nobleman who had made him a knight, who had taught him and instructed him to beware of talking too much. He feared it would be considered base of him if he asked, so he did not. 
Just then, two other boys appeared, and in their hands they held candlesticks of the finest gold, inlaid with black enamel. The boys who carried the candlesticks were handsome indeed. In each candlestick burned ten candles at the very least. A girl who came in with the boys, fair and comely and beautifully adorned, was holding a grail between her hands. When she entered holding the grail, so brilliant a light appeared that the candles lost their brightness like the stars or the moon when the sun rises. After her came another girl holding a silver trencher. The grail, which went ahead, was made of fine, pure gold, and in it were set precious stones of many kinds, the richest and most precious in the earth or the sea, and those in the grail surpassed all other jewels without a doubt. They passed before the bed as the lance had done, and disappeared into another chamber. The boy saw them pass, but did not dare to ask who was served from the grail, for he had taken the words of the wise nobleman to heart. I fear he may suffer for doing so, for I have heard it said that in time of need a man can talk too little as well as too much. I don't know whether it will bring him good or ill, but he asked nothing. So obviously there's a lot of suggestion going on in this passage. There is very vivid imagery which points towards the apparent importance of these objects and the way that they're being carried right in front of Percival and his host. There's also the suggestion of violence or suffering, right, with this drop of blood. Where did it come from? And there's the mystery of where the objects are going and why. So the procession here is hidden at both ends. We don't know where it came out from, and we don't know where it's headed. And it seems to just disappear, you could say, off stage. And it is obvious that Percival is intrigued, just like we, the hearer or reader of the poem, and probably more people would have heard this poem recited out loud or read out loud than would have read it on the page. The hearers and readers are also supposed to be intrigued. But as the narrator explicitly says, there's a conflict here between propriety and curiosity. Would it be rude or base of him to ask what these objects are and what's going on? Or should he satisfy his curiosity about them? And as you see at the end, there's this very strange and unusual aside where this unknown, unnamed narrator of the story breaks in and speaks to us in first person. I don't know why he did this or what consequence it's going to have, which also seems ironic because the narrator ought to know where the story is going and where it's going to end up. Are we supposed to understand here that the narrator is just making this up as they go along, that the, the ending is unpredictable? And that strange aside, I don't know if this was a mistake, again, marks out very dramatically the importance of this seemingly trivial fact that Percival didn't ask what is the purpose or who is going to be fed or served from this brilliant gold grail. Now, they go on to feast on bread and venison, mulberry wine and other sort of fine, tasty foods, and then they retire to their chambers. And Percival goes to bed, and when he wakes in the morning, he finds everyone gone. So this is another passage that I think really underscores the mood of mystery and the frustration that is built into the story of the Grail in this original form. 
and it hasn't been it's not as famous it hasn't been examined as as much but i think it's so interesting how it's written i'll just read this passage again where percival wakes up in this mysterious castle he slept until the morning when day had broken and the household had risen but he could see no one as he looked about him and he had to get up alone whether he liked it or not Seeing that he had no choice, he did the best he could, and put on his shoes without waiting for help. Then he went to don his arms again, finding that they had been brought and left at the head of a table. When he had fully armed his limbs, he headed for the doors of the chambers which had, he had seen open the night before. But the move was fruitless, for he found them shut tight. He called and beat and banged a good deal. Nobody opened up for him or said a word. After calling out for quite a while, he turned back to the door of the hall. He found it open and went down the steps to find his horse saddled and saw his lance and shield leaning against a wall. He mounted and went looking everywhere, but he did not find a living soul and could not see a squire or a boy. So he came straight to the gate and found the drawbridge lowered. It had been left like that, so that at whatever time he came to leave, nothing should stop him passing straight across. Seeing that the bridge was down, he thought the boys must all have gone into the woods to check their traps and snares. He had no wish to stay any longer, and he decided to go after them to see if any of them would tell him why the lance bled, if perhaps there was something wrong, and where the grail was carried. And so he rode out through the gate. But before he had got across the bridge, he felt his horse's hooves rise high into the air. The horse made a great leap and if he had not jumped so well, both horse and rider would have been in a sorry plight. The boy looked back to see what had happened, and saw that the bridge had been raised. He called out, but no one replied. So this passage, I think, is important because it emphasizes the, the bewilderment and the feeling of betrayal, I think, that you can feel on the part of Percival, that he's basically being frozen out of this place where just hours earlier he had been so warmly welcomed. And I would also suggest that this is the first careful suggestion in the story of some sort of magic at work. How did it happen that everyone in this castle has vis disappeared and seems to be invisible and that the drawbridge seems to have lifted itself on its own with nobody around? And this, I think, further raises the stakes and the tension of this mystery. What is so important about these objects, and why does it matter whether Percival asks about them or finds out what they are? So this incident with the Grail Castle, as it's often called, and with the so-called Fisher King, who uh, welcomed and feasted him, this incident redirects Percival's life and he feels anxiety and regret. He starts trying to make amends for some sort of misdeeds that he's done before that maybe have led him to fail in this encounter at the Grail Castle. And so he starts trying to sort of make amends for his past mistreatment of women in particular. And while going around on these errands, at one point he is accosted by an ugly woman who brings rebukes and threats to Percival and tells him that the Knights of the Round Table, for one thing, must go rescue a lady in distress, the Lady of Montesclair, and the knights gather together and go off on this quest. But the ugly woman, who is very mysterious, also specifically scolds Percival and condemns him for failing to ask the question of the Grail. 
So she explains that the king of this castle where where he went, who is sometimes called the Fisher King, that he was injured in battle, and now he is lame and unable to lead his knights. And because he's unable to lead his fighters in combat, the land is vulnerable to attack and plunder. And she explains that if Percival had asked about the Grail, the lord of the castle would have been healed. But because he failed, quote, ladies will lose their husbands, lands will be laid waste, girls will be left in distress and orphaned, and many knights will die. All these evils will happen because of you, end quote. So we're getting this setup of a cause and effect. If Percival had asked about what the Grail is and whom it serves, then the Fisher King would be healed and the country would recover. But we don't get an explanation of why. How is it that one thing leads to the other? That is still left mysterious. So Percival takes this then as his mission, while meanwhile another messenger shows up and confronts Gawain, another young knight of the Round Table, who in a lot of ways is portrayed in the Arthur legends very similarly to Percival, as kind of impulsive, a womanizer. So another messenger comes to Gawain and accuses him of murder. And so while most of the knights ride off to save Montesclair, Gawain splits off in order to face this other mysterious knight who has accused him of murder. And Percival, meanwhile, gives up all his chivalric quests and, and adventures. And instead he pledges that, quote, he would not lodge in the same place for two nights together, nor hear word of any perilous passage, but he would go and attempt it until he knew who was served from the grail and had found the bleeding lance, and learned the certain truth about why it bled. He would never give up whatever happened." End quote. So this, properly speaking, is the, this resolution is the beginning of the Grail quest. And something to notice right here right off the bat is that the Grail quest here is not about finding where the Grail is. It's not about possessing it or owning it. It's about learning what is its function. It is essentially a mystery, and he becomes an obsessed quester after truth. The rest of this verse story of Conte del Graal is then split alternating between passages discussing Gawain and Percival. So the two of them are off on their separate missions, and the, the narrator goes back and forth between them. Gawain goes after his challenger, and on the way he does many brave deeds and fights battles like you do. Percival tries to return to the castle, and for five years he searches. And on the way, he often defeats bad men, you know, troublemakers, and sends them as prisoners to Camelot. That's how you, you know, pacify the country. In this process, it gradually, gradually becomes apparent that the castle is somehow hidden or invisible. He can't trace back to where it ought to be. And after several episodes, Gawain learns that he cannot find his challenger until he first finds the bleeding lance. And so his mission in this way starts to converge with Percival's. Both of them are trying to get back to this mysterious castle where Gawain's object is the lance and Percival's is the grail, or at least is principally the grail. So there are Pads are starting to converge, and here the story shifts to Percival for another extended story. 
And in years of searching, Percival reportedly forgets about religion, and for a long time he never sets foot in a church. But one day he is riding armed through a wilderness, and he encounters another group of knights and ladies. So sort of like his first time encountering knights, where he thinks they're angels. This time he, he encounters a group of knights and ladies who are walking through the forest barefoot and wearing hair shirts. So they're doing some kind of penance. And they encounter Percival and they scold him for riding armed on Good Friday. So Percival is ashamed. He has no idea what day it is. He says, I'm not keeping track of the days. I'm just wandering around all the time. I didn't know it was Good Friday. And he asks, where have they just come from? Perhaps thinking that they're coming from a church. But they point him to a small house of a hermit in the woods. And Percival approaches the house weeping, full of shame and frustration that his, his mission is stalled. He's making no progress. And now he's being embarrassed and scolded. So he goes weeping into the hermit's house and he kneels down before the hermit and begs for help and guidance. The hermit tells him to confess his sins and to pray. And fortunately, it happens there's a priest in the house too. So that makes it, you know, kosher for him to make confession to this priest. But really his conversation is with the hermit. And the hermit tells him to confess his sins and pray. And Percival explains his dilemma, that he had been at a castle and had failed to ask about a grail or lance in the castle. And since that time, he's been stricken with grief and he has forgotten God. The hermit asks the knight his name. And when he says it, it, his name is Percival, the hermit recognizes that name. And then he explains to Percival what his curse is. His failure to ask the question about the grail was only secondary. The real reason for his suffering is another sin. It is the pain that he caused to his mother when he left, and which he doesn't realize then killed her. So this whole time Percival has been unaware that because he left his mother and set off on you know, adventures and deeds of chivalry, that she has died of grief. And the hermit explains that it was already too late before Percival set out to visit his mother. And that, of course, is what then led to this whole encounter at the Grail Castle. And so it was this sin that was on Percival's soul, that was unresolved, that is actually what stopped his tongue and inhibited him from asking about the Lance and the Grail. So now we have a further, you know, moral explanation of his dilemma. Then the hermit explains their family relationship. The hermit says, surprise, your mother who is now deceased, was my sister, the hermit's sister. So hence, the hermit is Percival's uncle. Their other surviving brother, in addition to the hermit himself and the, the deceased mother, the other surviving brother is an old abdicated king who is the father of the Fisher King. And this old abdicated king lives in isolation in his chambers at the castle, and, and I should say, to, to be clear here, there, there's confusion and contradiction in this story and other stories about the actual family relationship here. They are all related, but it gets fuzzy exactly how. And the hermit actually says that, quote, he believes that the Fisher King is the son of this old recluse king who's shut up in his chambers and who uh, is fed from the grail. 
So the hermit explains the grail. It is used to serve this old king. And the hermit says, quote, and don't imagine that he's given pike or lamprey or salmon, right? He's not fed on fish like the other people of the kingdom. He served with a single host, which is brought to him in that grail. It comforts and sustains his life. The grail is such a holy thing. And in French, this phrase is tant saint chose. It is such a holy thing. And he who is so spiritual that he needs not more in his life than the host that comes in the grail has lived there for 12 years without ever leaving the chamber which you saw the grail enter, end quote. So now you get this explanation of whom the grail serves, right? And the way the hermit explains it, the problem now is not Percival's lack of knowledge of the grail. It's the sinful state of his soul, which he must purify and overcome in order to then actually attain the grail. So the hermit tells Percival to start going to church every morning and hearing mass whenever possible and to be a good knight and help women and girls. He also asks Percival to stay with him and pray and eat simply with him, basically a, a plain vegetarian diet in the hermitage with him for two days. In other words, what he's saying is, you have come here on Good Friday. I want you to stay here with me in a sort of state of prayer and fasting until Easter when you're ready to ride out again. So there's this weaving together of the story of Christ's passion with Percival and his spiritual advance. And furthermore, the hermit teaches Percival a prayer which contains in it many secret names of God not to be repeated. And the poem doesn't tell us what those secret names are. So there's here a first an early inkling of esotericism, of hidden secret knowledge linked to the grail and the grail quest. So on Easter, Percival leaves, he rides out, and he goes to a church and receives communion. And the narrator says here, quote, the story says no more about Percival for now. You'll have heard a great deal more about Sir Gawain before I tell of him again, end quote. But another irony, we don't hear any more about Percival, not from this composition by Chrétien de Troyes, because the story then breaks off. And it seems based on the dating, probably this is where Chrétien conveniently died. And it's convenient in the sense that his story gives just enough to raise questions and establish stakes. What is so important about this grail? Why? Why is it that Percival has to ask about the grail? What is it about this question that has in itself some kind of healing power to heal the king and presumably by extension to save the kingdom? And what is this kingdom? What, what is this castle? How did this all come about? These questions and stakes are raised but then left open. So this incomplete verse story by Chrétien de Troyes is the earliest document, as I said, that talks about the Holy Grail. Now, there are a number of things that are significant and that stand out about this story that help maybe to explain why it stimulated a kind of furor around the Holy Grail. One is its style and structure. It's very novelesque. The story is seen entirely from Percival's point of view, except for the narration of Gawain's adventures, which are separate. But the encounter 
at this mysterious Grail castle is entirely from Percival's point of view. And we sort of experience it as he does with scenes and images appearing and processing before him as we wonder what they are and what they mean. And in this way, the, the famous passage at the Grail Castle is almost cinematic, right? And I think it, it lends itself to the visual imagination, although as far as I'm aware, it's never been dramatized well. Secondly is simply its religious content. The scene with the hermit is unique and innovative in an Arthurian romance. It is not a scene of adventure. Nobody's getting rescued. There's no combat. There's no valor in the classic chivalric sense. But it seems that this scene, this kind of retreat in the hermitage, begins to explore the role of religion and spirituality in the life of a knight which had not been done in any kind of extended way before. And it seems you could say like an attempt to elevate the romance, the chivalric romance for the first time, to a spiritual level. And we see, we follow as Percival advances from mastery of arms, which he's more or less already done by this point, to then perfection of the soul. Right? So it's sort of you maybe opening up a whole other level for romance that had never been seen before. Thirdly, there's the central conflict. So the central conflict of this story is partly about personal development and learning in this, in this case, it could be seen to be about learning the nuances of politeness, of how to play as a guest, how to accept hospitality graciously, how to make conversation and observe these social graces. So in, in, on one level, it's about the polishing of the demeanor, the etiquette of the night, but also undeniably, it's a mystery. It centers around a strange object that is treated with an odd and mysterious sort of reverence. It involves hidden rooms and hidden people. And there is an enormous stress in the story, not on fighting a battle in order to achieve this overarching goal, but rather asking a question. And there's this suggestion of intellectual and spiritual curiosity and of a quest after truth that also is not like any previous romance. And there is this constant emphasis, as I pointed out, on the mysteriousness of the whole story. The mysteriousness, for one thing, of the setting. What is this castle? Why does it seem to be hidden from view at first? This is pointed out very explicitly in the, the first time that Percival goes to look for this castle from the promontory. It's invisible to him, but then it appears. What does that mean? Is the castle real? Is it imaginary? Is it somehow magical or phantasmic? There's the mystery of the characters and their relationships. How exactly are these guys all related to each other familiarly? It gets very confusing and contradictory. And what is wrong with the Fisher King? What happened to him? Why is he unable to sit up straight? Why is he all dressed in black? And so on. The, myst the mystery of the objects. Why are these particular objects carried together? So in this initial grail procession, first a sword was brought and given to, uh, to Percival which maybe you could see as sort of the first of these mysterious objects. Then there is the lance, candelabras, the grail, 
and silver trenchers, or sort of wide dishes, usually for carrying meat. Are all of these objects somehow significant? Are they related together? And why does it matter whether Percival asks about them? And as a subpoint beneath this, there is this looming question, which I have not talked about, but which probably did figure in even to Chrétien de Troyes' audience at, at this early date, which is the question, what is a grail? This is not a commonly used term in Northern French. And I'll probably go back to that and talk more later. What is what, what does that word even mean? Do we use the word grail in English apart from the context of the Holy Grail? I don't think so. It is a completely unique word that was rarely or never seen in Northern French, and it does not get a clear explanation or definition in the story. And I think that this use of an unusual, probably unfamiliar term, heightens the sense of confusion and tension around the object itself. And then finally, there is the death of Chrétien mid-story, which creates a, an even greater sense of tension and mystery, and probably helped greatly to spawn massive interest about the Grail among the audience of chivalric romances, which basically was the upper class and the noble class of Europe. So the story of the Grail very quickly was expanded and elaborated in multiple different ways over about the next 50 years after Chrétien's death. And it led to the creation basically of five bodies of literature that deal with the Grail and try to give further meanings and explanations. So what are these five? Well, firstly, there was a series of continuations that various authors wrote and added on to Chrétien's original story. And there basically is a series of four of these continuations written at different times by different writers in the 1190s and early 1200s. And most of them probably were commissioned and patronized by Philip, the Count of Flanders' successors, so by other counts and countesses of Flanders. The first continuation focuses mainly on Gawain, and his quest to find the mysterious Lance. And Gawain, in this continuation, eventually does get to the Fisher King's castle, and he visits it twice. Both times he is given a challenge of mending a broken sword, and both times he fails. But nonetheless, he is allowed into the Grail Castle and is allowed to partake in dinners in the Grail Castle, and he sees the Grail procession. The first time, he sees the grail carried by a young lady who is weeping. And he sees this, and he asks about the bleeding lance, which then follows behind it. And he learns, he gets a sort of generic, vague answer, which explains that the grail and the lance both relate in some way to the passion of Christ. Then he comes back a second time, and the second time he sees the grail procession, and he sees the plates of the guests at this dinner all around him, miraculously fill up with food as the grail passes by. And he is amazed and mesmerized, and he wants very much to ask about the grail, but he falls asleep. The rest of the first continuation then shifts over, for some reason, to talking about Gawain's brother, Sir Garrett, and his life and adventures. Then the second continuation focuses back on Percival, 
and this one, Percival is in search of the castle, and twice he sees mysterious lights floating, like floating candles in the woods. And he learns that these strange lights are signs of the Grail's presence. So this is the first suggestion that the Grail can kind of appear and disappear and move around. And he follows these lights back to the castle. So he, he returns to the Fisher King's castle. At the castle, he dines and sees the grail, the lance, and the broken sword. He asks about the grail and the lance, but he is told that he must mend the sword first. So this challenge of mending the broken sword is interposed again. And he successfully rejoins the sword, but a small notch remains. So it's imperfect. And that is where this continuation ends. So another sort of cliffhanger of ambiguity. What does it mean that Percival did mend the sword, but imperfectly? Then the third continuation starts with an introduction, which explains that the notch in the sword signifies that Percival is not yet spiritually ready to learn the Grail secret. Percival then rides off from the castle and encounters a walled garden, which he wants to enter. He's not allowed in, so he breaks his sword while bashing on the gate trying to get in. He continues on, and he sees that the land, the presumably the domain of the Fisher King, this land is starting to heal, and the wasteland around the castle is verdant again. He goes through various trials involving ghosts and demons, so this continuation gets more and more otherworldly and magical in this way. He eventually returns to the castle and mends the sword again, this time flawlessly. And then the fourth continuation picks up there. Percival has mended the sword. He learns that the lance is the one that pierced the body of Christ. So it is an actual relic of Christ's passion. You may, you may know the stories and the images of a Roman soldier who is testing if Christ was alive or dead, and he stabbed him in the side. Hence, Christ is shown with a wound in the side. So this is the lance that inflicted that wound. He also then learns about the broken sword. So he learns that the broken sword is the one that an evil warrior named Partinial used to kill the Fisher King's brother. So in this way, it's sort of connected to a spiritual wound that the Fisher King has suffered. And Percival then goes off and finds and kills Partinial, and comes back with his head, back to the Grail Castle. The Fisher King receives him, tells Percival that he is the Fisher King's nephew. So this is arguably not totally consistent with what the Hermit said, but you know, well, who's counting? So now Percival is told he is the Fisher King's nephew. And hence the Hermit in the woods, the Fisher King, and the old recluse king are all his uncles. And so by implication, Percival should be the heir. The Fisher King has no children. Percival is the heir presumptive. And they feast and celebrate. And again, as the grail passes, people's dish, dishes are magically filled up. And just one surviving early manuscript of this, the ending of the tale adds an element. So the, the, probably some later author inserted this in in the 1200s. And it says, quote, And Percival stared long at the grail until finally it happened that the grail came right up to him, freely and openly, and Percival was filled with joy." End quote. So these are critical new elements that have come in here in the last, basically the last two continuations of the story. 
The grail seems to have a mind of its own. It can move of its own accord. And the grail here gives not only nourishment, but emotional comfort. And evidently, the authors here were elaborating on or borrowing from each other, from other romance writers who by this time, by the 1200s, were also writing and talking about the grail. So these sort of ideas are popping up, circulating, being repeated, and maybe also drawing on folk stories, oral stories about the grail. We don't know for sure, but the the power and the significance of the grail seem to be growing as we go on. And then in a concluding note at the end of the tale, after the Fisher King dies, Percival succeeds him. He has a month-long celebration where the guests and celebrants are fed by the grail. And Percival rules over the kingdom for seven years. Then he retires and becomes a hermit. And when he dies, the grail vanishes, and it is forever gone from the earth. So that is the concluding note in this version. Now, as I said, there are other versions that try to weave together and polish the story of the grail quest in a more kind of finished form that were taken up by particular writers very soon on the heels. And the first one, which is very important, is the so-called Histoire du Graal, or History of the Grail, which is a trilogy of three stories about the Grail, written by a writer named Robert de Boron. So Robert de Boron is also mysterious. We don't know much about who he was or where he came from. Presumably, he came from the town of Boron in eastern France. His patron was Gautier de Montbéliard, who was a very powerful noble who ruled a lot of that area of eastern France. Gautier, we know, went on crusade in the year 1202, and he traveled to the Holy Land along with a Flemish contingent, so from, from Flanders. And he, he maybe fought briefly in Palestine, but he actually served for a time for several years as the regent of Cyprus, the crusader kingdom of Cyprus. And Robert de Boron may have gone with him. It seems likely that he went with him and he probably got some stories about the Passion of Christ and about Joseph of Arimathea from Eastern Christians in the Holy Land. So Robert de Boron writes a trilogy, which in a way completely reorients the story as it had been told by Chrétien. So Robert, instead of following the main heroes, Percival and Gawain, instead he, pay, he traces the path of the holy objects, the grail and the lance. So it's sort of reoriented from a story of a knight's adventure to the history of these objects. And the style of this trilogy is much more like saints' lives than it is like romances. It has this sort of spiritual and miraculous overtones and the, just the, the, the language of it is more like the saints' lives. The adventure is m- much toned down. There's a lot less about battles and jousts and so on. And there's much more of an emphasis on spiritual experience. So the three basic stories in the trilogy are firstly Joseph of Arimathea, which is a sort of elaboration on a character who is mentioned in the New Testament as a sort of private secret supporter of Jesus. The second one is Merlin, the great sorcerer and sage of King Arthur's court. And thirdly, Percival. So just a, re- a retelling 
of the Percival quest. So the first book, Joseph of Arimathea, gives an explanation of the grail and where it came from. So according to this story, the grail was the dish used by Christ to present the bread at the Last Supper. So it was what he was proffering when he said, eat of this bread for it is my body. And in, in this, in, in Robert's phrasing, this is how Christ made his sacrament, right? It's the dish with which he made his sacrament. This same dish or vessel was then obtained by Joseph of Arimathea, and he used it to collect blood from Christ's body after Christ was taken down from the cross. Afterwards, Christ then appears. After he is resurrected, he appears to Joseph of Arimathea, and he tells Joseph that the grail is sacred and symbolic and that it has protective power. So according to Christ, the grail is an extension of the symbolism of the bread as representing Christ's own body. And he says, quote, The vessel of the sacrament will be a reminder of the stone tomb in which you laid me, and the paten, which is a sort of broad dish that can sit as a lid on top. The paten, which will be placed on top, will be a reminder of the lid with which you covered me. And the cloth called the corporal will be a reminder of the winding sheet in which you wrapped me. And so your work will be remembered until the world's end. And all who see the vessel and remain in its presence will have lasting joy and fulfillment for their souls. And all who take these words to heart will be more gracious and admired both in this world and in the eyes of our Lord, and will never be victims of injustice or deprived of their rights. End quote. So now we're seeing an image of the grail taking shape. It is a bread dish. It has a paten or lid that can be placed over it, and it has a cloth laid over it. And all of these things are alleged to have symbolic meanings referring back to the passion of Christ. And it has spiritual power to give joy and fulfillment, as well as worldly protective power. Now, in addition to this, Christ also tells Joseph of Arimathea some secret words that are unknown and that the narrator will not repeat. And this obviously has set off <laughs> much commentary and speculation through the ages, this hint of esoteric meanings. So the, so the narrator says after this, quote, Then Jesus spoke other words to Joseph, which I dare not tell you. Nor could I, even if I wanted to, if I did not have the high book in which they are written. And that is the creed of the great mystery of the grail. And I beg all those who hear this tale to ask me no more about it at this point, in God's name, for I should have to lie. So again, here in Robert's text, he's doing this same weird device that Chrétien did when he talked about the grail, which is to say there's something here, uh, he addresses us directly in first person, and here he tells us there's something I can't tell you. And again, it has this great signaling power that this is something really important. You need to know that there is a secret doctrine of some sort that is passed down along with the grail. And this adds, I think, again, this it opens up this game of concealment and enticement. The grail reveals and hides at the same time. So Joseph of Arimathea forms a fellowship of believers and followers to protect the grail. But this fellowship splits because there is a divide between believers and non-believers, who, those who truly believe in the power of the grail and those who in their hearts disbelieve. 
So the fellowship splits, and those who most truly believe sit down and hold a supper with the grail. And the narrator tells us, quote, And when those who had sat down to eat sensed the sweetness and the fulfillment of their hearts, they very soon forgot the others. One who was seated at the table, whose name was Petrus, looked at those who were standing and said, Do you feel what we feel? We feel nothing, they replied. So there's this growing emphasis that there's some sort of spiritual, internal feeling that comes with proximity to the grail that only certain people can feel and that is somehow incommunicable. So there's a growing aura around the grail, its spiritual and emotional power and as alongside its nourishing power. So subsequent to this, Joseph of Arimathea and his followers conserve and protect the grail and the faithful group then leaves they take to to keep it safe and to and because of visions and and voices they take the grail and leave from the holy land they travel through various countries around europe the mediterranean and they eventually get to britain and in britain they then leave the grail with joseph's brother-in-law named bron and bron supposedly then lives for a long time off of the power of the grail and he becomes the fisher king so that's how this prequel this backstory eventually links up to the classic grail quest the second book called merlin focuses more on the time of camelot and king arthur merlin prophesies at the coronation of arthur that the best knight of camelot will be the one who will attain the grail and he says that this hero will have the blood of christ and the enchantments that are laying upon Britain, presumably these are some sort of bad magical forces that lay upon Britain, will be lifted. Merlin casts the grail then as the great purpose of Camelot and the Round Table. And the Round Table is cast then as an echo of the table of the Last Supper. So there, there's this tripartite structure set up where first you have the table of the Last Supper around Christ and his disciples, then you have the table of the Grail Fellowship led by Joseph of Arimathea, and then the third instantiation, the third table, is the round table of Arthur's court. And this round table is an echo then of the Last Supper and the Grail Fellowship, and he asserts there will be one vacant seat left empty for the Grail hero that can only be taken by this best knight who will be the one to, t to attain the Holy Grail. Then the third book called Percival involves the whole round table going off on the quest, not just Percival, but it is Percival who ultimately succeeds. And it gives a very similar account to the earlier versions of Percival. He goes to the castle, he's feasted, he sees objects being paraded, but he is too diffident to ask about them. He goes through seven years of wandering and searching, and then the hermit and Merlin both scold and reprove him to be more moral and to stick to his mission of seeking the grail. He goes to the castle again. He asks about the purpose of the grail and lance. And now it's explicitly explained that the king is instantly healed and revived. And Percival takes the king's place then as the grail keeper. He learns the sacred words, which we never see. And then the story narrates 
the classic end of the Arthur mythos, with the defeat of Arthur, the downfall of Camelot, and finally Merlin retires to the Grail Castle. He also becomes a hermit, lives in a hermitage, which he calls the Esplumoir, which is a mysterious word that only appears here, but it seems to have something to do with feathers, the shedding of feathers, molting. This telling of the story by Robert de Boron has certain familiar continuing elements. The focus on Percival, his personal flaws, his long arduous mission, which finally ends with the achievement of the Grail. It includes a similar Grail procession with four objects. So we see strung together the sword, the lance, the Grail, and a silver trencher. It continues the theme of the Grail as providing food, not just the Eucharistic host, but also food for a feast. It continues the theme of the emotional or mystical power of the mere presence of the grail, the sense of joy and fulfillment. And a lot of the text plays on words where the, the word for delight that's used here is agréé. And then it is implied that graal for grail is somehow linked to agréé. So the, it means the delightful thing in some way. And then finally, the ultimate disappearance of the grail from the world. That is the, the final note. A dropped element is the, the test of the broken sword, the sword that has to be found or mended as a test. And that will reappear again in other versions of the story, but for whatever reason, it's not in Robert's version. New elements that appear in this story that weren't seen before are firstly the elaborate backstory with Joseph of Arimathea, which gives us an explanation of how this holy object got to Britain. There's the greater detail on the features of the grail. We understand now that it's a footed dish with a patent lid and with a cloth, at least in many instances, with a cloth laid over it. There's the weaving of the theme of the grail then through all of the Arthur mythos. Robert brings in the involvement of Merlin and his prophecies. He brings in this, the siege perilous, as it's called in, in later versions, this reserved seat that only the grail knight can sit in at the round table. And ultimately, it gives the Grail this special status as the final overarching goal or achievement of all of Arthur's reign. And that is why it's really taken on this meaning, like I said, in modern thought and modern language. And it also adds in this crucial element of the secret words, which the narrator directly says they cannot repeat. Okay, so the next known version of the Grail story that appears in writing is anonymous. We don't know the author and the author's never named. It's titled Perlis Veus, so just a sort of Latinization of Percival. It's also called The High Book of the Grail, and we don't know which which one of these titles maybe was the original. But it's a prose romance which was written in French between about 1200 and 1210. So it's coming basically at the same time that the last continuations were being added on to Chrétien de Troyes' tale. So we don't know who wrote it, but the patron is named as Jean de Nel, who was the castellan of Bruges. So he was the sort of military caretaker of Bruges, a city in Flanders. And Jean de Nel also went with the Flemish contingent on crusade at the same time that Gautier de Montbéliard did. But he he embarked on the Fourth Crusade, which, if you 
you know, have read or heard about the Crusades was a big disaster and ended up sacking the Christian cities of Zadar and Constantinople. So Giandanel refused to take part in those attacks, and instead he went directly to Syria, ready to fight in the Holy Land, but he was unable to mount a campaign to Jerusalem. And so he was kind of, uh, you know, again, a kind of failed quasi-crusader. Meanwhile, at some point, he also founded and supported Cistercian monasteries in France. And it's considered likely that Perlisveus was written there in one of these Cistercian monasteries by the monks under the patronage of Jean Denel. And the earliest manuscripts of Perlisveus are found in those monasteries. So briefly, Perlisveus gives the background of the Grail as a vessel that held the blood of Christ as he was taken down from the cross. And it was then passed down by various keepers in the island of Britain. The story of the romance begins at King Arthur's court, where the king reportedly has become lax, he's lost his passion for great deeds, he's being scolded by Guinevere that he should keep up his standards. And in this situation, a mysterious woman shows up and scolds the king and the round table. And she says that many knights have died because one of them failed to ask the question about the grail. So the king and his knights then set off in quest for the grail. Right? They, they see this as the, the opportunity to again prove their worth and prowess. So they go off in quest of the grail, and three of them in this version of the story eventually make it to the grail castle. And those three are Gawain, Lancelot, and Percival. So the woman who comes and gives this, this charge to the knights of the round table, she appears specifically to Gawain, and tells him that there is only one good knight who will attain the grail, and it's not him. So Gawain goes off to look for this better, more perfect knight. And in his search, he comes to the grail castle. And from afar, he sees that all the people of the castle are fervently praying and venerating something that he can't see inside a chapel. So some sort of service, maybe a mass is being performed in this small closed chapel and the whole, all the people of the castle have gathered around. So we might suppose that maybe this was a service in the chapel involving the grail. Gawain wants to enter, but he is told that he must first bring to them the sword that was used to behead John the Baptist. So Gawain goes off and survives various symbolic tests and trials. He gets this sword, comes back, and gets admission into the castle. And in the castle, Gawain sees the grail procession several times. And the, the romance tells us at one point, quote, Sir Gawain was deep in thought, so deep in joyful thought that he could think only of God. And in this state, he starts to see visions. First, he sees a child inside the grail and then he sees a crucifix with christ rising above it and he is totally mesmerized by these visions and so he pays no attention when the knights get up and go off to another chamber and so it seems that here he misses taking part in the grail service so here it's not spiritual impurity but maybe you could say lack of intelligence lack of alertness that means that gawain misses out on attaining the grail then next, Lancelot comes to the Grail Castle, but the Grail does not appear to him at all because he is impure of heart. Then thirdly, Percival comes. Percival is summoned by his sister to help protect their mother, 
who is at the Grail Castle. So in this version, the mother's not dead, and the sister tells him, you have to come to this castle in order to protect our mother who is under threat. The castle was under attack by an evil uncle. So the, the uncles keep multiplying. Now there's an evil uncle who is called King of Castle Mortal. So maybe he represents death or sort of angel of death. And there's a long back and forth complicated struggle over control of the Grail Castle between Percival's forces and the evil uncle. In the process, the Fisher King is killed, but eventually Percival prevails. And with the help and support of the hermits of the woods, who are apparently sort of holy people, and also a lion, why not? The Percival with the hermits and the lion come and capture the Grail Castle. And reportedly, the Grail had vanished while the evil uncle controlled the castle. But now it reappears when Percival takes possession. So Percival then steps in and rules for some time as the lord of the castle. King Arthur himself also comes to visit and venerate the Grail in the Grail castle. They also welcome uh, hermit pilgrims who are coming to venerate the Grail. And at one point, as they pray, a voice tells Percival to divide up the holy objects among the hermits. So the, these holy objects that were in the procession are distributed out to these hermits. And then a ship comes up the river and takes Percival away. And angels come down and take the grail and bear it up to God in heaven. And that's the end of the story. So there's a clear continuing element here of after the attainment of the grail and some sort of period of peace and happiness, the grail disappears into the, the other world. There are also new elements, of course, in this version of the story, mainly the notion that three knights in succession go to the castle, right? And third time is a charm. So shortly after Perlis Veyes, a group of French writers, apparently of anonymous, unnamed French writers, who may have also been Cistercian monks in these monasteries. These writers together compose and assemble a massive cycle attempting to retell the complete story of the Arthur mythology, culminating with the attainment of the Grail. And this complete cycle is traditionally called the Vulgate Cycle, Current scholars also call it the Lancelot Grail cycle. I'll call it the Vulgate cycle, to be clear. This Vulgate cycle is longer and more elaborate. It tries to retell the whole Arthur cycle in five main books, and it seems to have been composed between about 1210 and 1240, more or less. It may have originally been royally commissioned, and some have argued that it, it may have been first patronized by Eleanor of Aquitaine, while her sons were on the throne. Of the five books, the fourth one is called The Quest for the Holy Grail, and it tells the story of the Knights of the Round Table searching for the Grail. And again, in this version, three knights go to the Grail Castle, but it's not the same series. It is Gawain, Lancelot, and Sir Bors, who is, I believe, a cousin of Lancelot. None of them finally achieve it. Rather, the Grail is eventually attained by another fourth knight called Galahad, who is a new character who appears, as far as we know, for the first time in the Vulgate Cycle. So the story in the quest for the Holy Grail in the Vulgate Cycle starts with Gawain. Gawain is riding around looking for trouble, 
and he gets to the Fisher King's castle. He's allowed in to a feast. He sits by the king. He sees a girl bring in, quote, the most splendid vessel that had ever been seen by earthly man, which was made in the semblance of a chalice. She held it above her head so that all those present saw it and bowed. And it goes on, Sir Gawain looked at the vessel and admired it more than anything he had ever seen, but he was unable to learn what it was made of, for it was composed neither of wood, nor of any kind of metal, nor of stone, nor was it of horn or bone, which amazed him. As the maiden passed in front of the dining table, each knight knelt before the holy vessel, and the tables were at once replenished with all the delightful foods that one could describe, and the palace was filled with delicious odors, as if all the spices in the world had been scattered there. So you can see the recurring element of the sense of awe, the feeding, the miraculous feeding of food. Here, the new element is brought in of the, the smells, and this becomes a continuing theme about the grail, the beautiful smells that follow behind it. And in, in this version, it's no longer described as gold. It's some sort of indescribable unknown material. So it's taking on a more kind of heavenly nature. So Gawain is so amazed and distracted, he fails to pray, and so he gets no food. And the other men leave, presumably to go to a grail mass, and Gawain is left alone, locked in the room. He has to fight his way out, and now he goes through many trials and tests and combats trying to get out of this trap. Finally, he is carted out of town in disgrace, which is the, you know, the most shameful mode of transport in the Middle Ages, was a cart. But he then learns from a hermit in the woods that the castle is called Corbenic. So this is the first time we have an actual name of the castle. And the king of the castle is called Pelles. And the dish is called the Holy Grail. So this particular vessel has been called by many names and epithets through these different versions of the story. And occasionally the phrase Holy Grail is used. But this is the point where for whatever reason, this hermit in the Vulgate cycle assigns names to things. The castle is Corbenic, the king is Pelles, the dish is the Holy Grail. And that's, of course, how it's now been known ever since. And the hermit explains to Gawain, quote, because you were not humble and simple, it is right that his bread is refused to you. So again, there's this association. The Grail is the bread dish from the Last Supper. Then we get Lancelot. Uh, Lancelot goes through various fights and trials as well, some of them the same as Gawain's, but he cannot attain the grail due to his impurity of heart. Nonetheless, the king, the Fisher King, sees that Lancelot is a great knight, that he shows valor and courage and skill. And so the king arranges a trick. The king and his advisors give Lancelot a drug to deceive him and make him think that the king's daughter, Helene, is Guinevere. They know that he is in love with Guinevere, and this is his great weakness. So they play this trick on him. He mistakes the princess for Guinevere. They have sex. The princess conceives and later has a son, and that son is Galahad. So Galahad is set up as the, the heir of both sides, of the, the chivalric valor and prowess of Lancelot and the spiritual purity of the Grail Castle. Then thirdly, we have Sir Bors. Sir Bors gets to the castle. He joins the feast. He does eat food from the grail. And he then also goes through combats and trials. 
And finally, through these trials, he reaches a chapel where he sees the Grail Mass, and he sees the Grail itself uncovered. So now, little by little, we're being exposed to what's going on with the Grail. There is this Eucharistic Mass where the bread and wine are consecrated, and the Grail is used in this Mass. And Bors, he has many injuries and wounds from his fights, but he is healed by the presence of the Grail. However, he can't approach too close because it is, is too powerful. He cannot go up to, into the chapel close to the Grail. And that is the end of Bors's quest. Then in the intervening years, there are other episodes. Percival comes in in a very minor role. And at one point, Percival is going through his adventures. He fight, gets in a fight and has injuries. And the injuries are miraculously healed by the appearance of the Grail. Then the story turns to Galahad. So Galahad is growing up, right? He's raised initially in the Grail castle by the Grail family. At age 15, he moves to an abbey closer to Camelot, where he can be in contact with his father, Lancelot, and he begins his training as a knight. Galahad is the most chaste, the most temperate, the most pure knight. He combines, as I said, the spiritual purity of the Grail family with the fighting skills of Lancelot, at least close to as good as Lancelot. Galahad, when he comes of age and he's, he's an, a full-fledged knight, he goes to Camelot to join the Round Table, and he arrives there on Pentecost, right? so the, the holiday that celebrates the, the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the Apostles. He goes on Pentecost, and various miracles happen to sort of announce his arrival. Words appear on the Siege Perilous saying that this seat will find its master today. A stone comes floating down the river with a sword stuck in it, and the inscription saying, for the best knight in the world. And Galahad arrives at Camelot with claps of thunder. He pulls the sword out of the stone, so as if it belongs to him, and he enters Camelot. And as he goes into the hall, an old man appears and announces that Galahad is of the line of King David and Joseph of Arimathea. So this is one of the early suggestions that the Grail family, who keep the Grail at Corbenic, are descendants of the royal line of David. And Galahad now is an heir of that line. Galahad takes the siege perilous. A sunbeam breaks through and fills the room. And the grail floats in through the door, covered in a white cloth. The room is filled with fragrance of spices. And all are fed with delicious food. And then the grail vanishes again. And Arthur declares that from this point, all the knights of the round table shall set off on the quest for the grail. So it's taken on this sort of highest miraculous status in the entire Arthur mythology. Then there are many adventures, but of course none find the Grail. At one point, there is an encounter with the Grail where Lancelot is injured, and while he is recovering, he's taken to a jail. And in that jail, he's healed when the Grail appears while he sleeps. So it seems the, the Grail is increasingly acting and thinking, and it is choosing to heal Lancelot, but not appear to him. Eventually, Lancelot does get to the Grail castle. He sees the Grail in the chapel, and because he is so overwhelmed and delirious, he accidentally approaches too close to it, and so is knocked out unconscious. Finally, Galahad, Percival, and Bors meet up together, travel together, and go to the castle. 
Galahad, as they go in, slays a dragon and is able to enter the castle. They have a feast, which ends with the achievement of the grail. So the question is asked, and the grail is attained. All celebrate, and then angels carry in a table and a bishop. There's this sort of useful bishop who maybe is Joseph of Arimathea, or maybe his son. It's uncertain. This bishop appears, and everyone is kicked out of the hall, except for 12 good knights. And these 12 good knights are three each from the countries that King Arthur rules, that are under his rule. So three from Britain, from Ireland, from Gaul, and from Denmark. And the three from Britain, of course, are Bors, Percival, and Galahad. These knights and this bishop then hold a grail mass. Angels take up the lance and hold it over the grail so that blood from the lance drips into the grail. The bishop explains that they are the best knights, being rewarded for their good acts, and then he vanishes. And he is replaced by a figure of Christ, who is not named, but apparently is Christ with the five wounds, who rises up out of the grail and addresses them as those, quote, who have attained the spiritual life. So he says, quote, my knights, my servants, and my faithful sons, you who have attained the spiritual life while still in the flesh, you who have sought me so diligently that I can hide myself from you no longer, it is right that you should see part of my secrets and my mysteries. For your labors have won a place for you at my table, where no one has eaten since the days of Joseph of Arimathea. As for the rest, they have had the servants do, which means that the knights of this castle and many more beside have been filled with the grace of the holy vessel, but never face to face as you are now. So we get this full circle explanation that the grail has existed for all these years, that it has sometimes appeared to knights and given them sustenance. But now, for the first time since biblical times, a gathering of followers, of disciples, of servants are being brought together to share at table with Christ himself. Then Christ takes up the grail and presents it specifically to Galahad. So again, there's this theme of sort of first among equals. Although there are 12 of them, like the 12 disciples, there is still one who stands out as special, and that is Galahad. So Galahad holds the grail, and then they all eat bread from it. And Christ explains that it is the lamb platter, that held meat at the Last Supper. So it has this sort of double double meaning, double use. It is the, the dish of the sacrificial lamb and also of the bread. And he explains that it is called grail because it is agreeable to the faithful. Right? So again, that, that play on words, this sort of fanciful etymology of the word grail. Now you might think this is the end, right? Okay, the story has come full circle. Everything is now resolved. Is this the end? No there's more. Christ then tells this fellowship that they have to take the grail out of Britain because Britain has been unfaithful and corrupt. They must take it out of Britain and take it to some other land called Saras, which is a country that Joseph of Arimathea had gone through on his travels. So the grail fellowship take the grail and they journey there to Saras. They find that it is ruled by a pagan king who throws them into prison. But, of course, the grail feeds them and keeps them alive while they're imprisoned. The king eventually grows ill, and as he's on his deathbed, he sets them free. When the king finally dies, the knights proclaim Galahad the new king, and he takes his place as king of Saras. Galahad rules for only one year. Then 
at the completion of this year, they all go in for a grail service. And again, the bishop miraculously appears. He tells Galahad to approach the table with the grail. And Galahad is able to look directly into the grail. And this, in the Vulgate cycle, appears to be the real attainment, the real fulfillment. He looks directly into the grail. He trembles with ecstasy and is so fulfilled that he prays to immediately die. And the bishop first explains that he, the bishop, is Josephus, the son of Joseph of Arimathea. He tells Galahad that he is a good, pure, and virginal knight, and so he can behold the grail. Galahad turns and says goodbye to Percival and Bors and his friends. He kneels on the floor before the table and promptly dies, and angels carry his soul up to heaven. Percival and Sir Bors then see a disembodied hand come down from the sky and pick up the grail and lance. And the narrator finally tells us, quote, no man since has ever dared to say he saw the Holy Grail. So this is a dramatic, iconic exit for both Galahad and the Grail, which again is seemingly final, but with a little note of uncertainty. You could say there's a, there's a hint of ambiguity. No man since has ever dared to say he saw the Holy Grail. Does that mean it's really gone? Does that mean that it can never be seen again? It's not really entirely closed. Percival, for his part, withdraws and becomes a hermit, and Bors returns back to Camelot, which then, of course, later falls apart in the, the classic story of Arthur's downfall. So that is how the Vulgate cycle was rounded out. However, after all of that was written, it seems a few years later, the authors of the cycle added a prequel. So like Robert de Boron, they felt a need to provide the backstory of how all of this began. So a prequel was added on called History of the Holy Grail, just like Robert de Boron's cycle. And it also tells the backstory of how the Grail got to Britain in the first place. So in this telling, it gets very Baroque. It tells of how Joseph of Arimathea and his followers journeyed to Britain, and it's told in such a way as to mimic the book of Exodus. It's reminiscent of the Israelites wandering in the desert. And at one point, they even enclose the grail in an ark, like the Israelites are said to put the tablets of the law in an ark. They see visions of angels and demons and Christ on the cross. At one point, a Christ figure appears and consecrates Josephus as the first bishop. So it's made into kind of a founding myth of the church. There are then many more complicated episodes with wars and involvement of angels and demons. There are temptations. The fellowship is tempted to give up the faith or to open the grail and look inside. One of them is blinded for looking too close to the grail. One follower named Nassian eventually reaches Britain, and he starts trying to convert the pagan people of Britain, and he founds an ancestral line of keepers, which eventually leads down to Galahad. And in this story, the Grail keeps repeatedly punishing people who try to come too close to it or to claim too much power from it. As I said, it blinds one of them. It strikes another one down who tries to take a seat at the table with the Grail. It refuses to feed certain people. One follower has his sword broken, which then turns out later to be this, the broken sword that Galahad has to mend in order to get into the Grail castle. And this prequel finally ends with resolution setting up the grail quest 
the grail keeper named Alan goes out to explore in a sort of mysterious territory called the land beyond. And in there, he converts a king named Alphasan. Alphasan then builds a stronghold in this land beyond in order to keep and protect the grail. Alphasan sleeps for a first night in this castle when it's constructed, but then an angel appears and stabs him in the thigh, disabling him, basically telling him, you are not worthy to live in this castle with the grail. So hence it's implied the castle is Corbenic, and the Alphasan who has been stabbed in the thigh either is the Fisher King himself or is some forebear and progenitor of the Fisher King. And all the keepers of the grail then possibly are threatened with the punishment of being crippled just for the crime of being and living too close to the grail. So there are all kinds of new elements in this part of, in this backstory in the Vulgate cycle. It's very phantasmagoric with a lot of dramatic imagery with angels and demons intervening in the story. There's an angelic explanation for the lameness curse of the Fisher King. And there is, you could say, a kind of ambiguity of good and evil. Angels and even the grail itself often appear fearsome, scary, vengeful. You know, it doesn't have the same sort of joyous serenity that we see in earlier stories. Galahad appears and he is serene and pure. He's the hero who rises above it all. And there's a strong suggestion in the Vulgate cycle of a sort of mystical perfectionism. So whereas in the earliest versions, Percival attains the grail by overcoming his flaws and sins and temptations, Galahad is never tempted in the first place. And it's strange and ambiguous. Why is that? Why is Galahad apparently sort of effortlessly perfect? And does this suggest that Galahad and, and the new version of the story have taken on a kind of mystical overtone rather than moral. So the Vulgate cycle is sort of the great summation, you could say, of the French version of the story. Now, at the same time, some German writers also started writing their version of the Grail story. So there are several early German romances by several authors, but the earliest and the most influential is called Parzival. So just the you know, German equivalent, German version of the name. And it was written in the 1210s, about the same time as the earlier parts of the Vulgate cycle. And it was written by a man named Wolfram von Eschenbach. And we don't know a lot about Wolfram, but he said a few comments about himself in his life. One of them is he said he grew up very poor and that in his household they were so poor that even the mice had trouble finding enough to eat. And Wolfram's main patron was a regional ruler named Hermann I, who was the ruler of Thuringia in the Holy Roman Empire in what's now Germany. Hermann I also went on crusade. He went on the so-called German crusade briefly in 1197 and 98. So he patronized Wolfram, who was clearly a very talented writer and very witty. He, there are a lot of humorous remarks in his work. Uh, at one point, Wolfram says that he would never take his wife to Camelot because surely some knight in no time would be whispering sweet nothings in her ear and promising to serve her forever. So he's clearly kind of wryly skeptical of this whole cult of courtly love. And his style is also fairly fantastical and romantic at the same time that it has this sort of wry wit. 
And Wolfram's tale of Parzival begins, firstly, by speaking about Parzival's father, whom he names Gamuret, who was supposedly a prince of Anjou. So we know almost nothing about Percival's father in all the earlier versions. But this has a long section describing the father, Gamuret, going off on long journeys to the east, including to Arabia. Along the way, he has many affairs and adventures. And eventually, he marries a British woman and fathers a son, who is Percival. But then he goes off to fight along with friends and allies in Babylon and dies there in Babylon. So the mother then raises Percival in the woods in isolation from the world of chivalry. So these, this part of the story now is familiar. But nonetheless, Percival sets out to become a knight anyway, and he goes through trials and adventures that are basically the same as in Chrétien's original version. The Grail Castle that he reaches, in Wolfram's version, it's called Montsalvèche, which is one of Wolfram's sort of word plays. And Mont, you know, just means hill or mountain. And then the Salvation is ambiguous. It can be taken to mean the Savage Mountain or Wild Mountain or the Mountain of Salvation. And the story then has Percival witness an exceedingly elaborate and sumptuous procession, like pumped up beyond what we've seen before. It in, and it includes 18 ladies carrying in different gold and silver objects. Percival glimpses a silver-haired old man lying in bed in a side chamber. So this is the first time ever that we're, we're told that Percival actually sees the old king who's fed with the Eucharistic bread from the grail. And then the mostly the familiar plotline ensues. He leaves without attaining the grail. A lady accosts him and tells him that he has to go seek the grail again. Gawain also takes up the quest for the Holy Grail, so they're working together. And Percival searches for several years. But in this version, you know, he he fails for several years. And not only does he get weary and frustrated, but he actually actively blames and abjures God. Why, why, should, I, why should I worship God when I am so left adrift? Eventually, he meets up with the group of pilgrims on Good Friday who tell him to return to the faith. And Percival decides at this point to challenge God. He says, if God is so all-powerful, then he should simply guide my horse to a source of help and guidance. And the horse then takes him to the hermit's cabin. And the hermit explains that at the castle is a company of religious knights guarding the grail. And he calls these knights, quote, Templars. This isn't necessarily Templar with a capital T, right? It doesn't necessarily mean, as we would understand it, members of the poor fellow soldiers of Christ in the Temple of Solomon but it means sort of guardians of a temple, right? So these Templar knights live by the power of a stone, a precious stone. And this stone does several miraculous things. So we're not told it's a vessel or a cup. It's a stone which provides food. It causes a phoenix bird to repeatedly die and be reborn, like phoenixes do. It maintains youth. So this is the first reference to sort of restoring or maintaining youth. And it magically summons new members of the fellowship by showing their names in an inscription around its rim. The current grail keeper at the castle on Fortas was maimed because he served a lady outside of wedlock. So he has the same sort of moral problem as Lancelot. 
and he has been wounded in a joust, stabbed through the genitals. So this is significant because earlier versions said the king was stabbed in the thigh, and hence he is lame. And many critics have taken that to symbolize being uh, impotent, right? Having lost virility. The thigh was considered a sexual part of the body and could be a euphemism for the genitals. Well, Wolfram comes right out and says he got stabbed in the genitals. And the bleeding lance in the procession is the one that stabbed him. And he cannot be healed. Only the Grail Knight can cure him. And that presumably is parts of all. Nonetheless, the Grail Fellowship are elect and blessed, and they secretly keep the peace, not only in their own kingdom, but all around Britain. So they have, they're sort of like an invisible peacekeeping force. So that is what Parzival learns from the Hermit. Then the story turns back to Gawain's activities for a while. You know, we have a digression to Gawain following the sort of pattern of Chrétien. And then it comes back to Percival. And this is the episode. Percival's Saracen half-brother named Feriphes shows up in Britain, encounters Percival, and they fight a combat. So they initially fight, but then they reconcile. They realize that they are half-brothers fathered by the same father, Percival in Britain and Feriphes somewhere off in the eastern lands, maybe Babylon, maybe North Africa or Arabia. They join together and go together to Camelot, and then from there they go to Montsalvage. And Percival there achieves the grail and takes up the crown of the kingdom. Feriphes, for his part, falls in love with the grail bearer, the lady who carries the grail. And he gets baptized, becomes a Christian, and marries her. So by implication, he was not a Christian previous to this. So this whole story, this, this odd alternate version by Wolfram, it returns back to the themes of chivalry, heroism, and personal growth and personal destiny. It does not have the same kind of explicit mystical or theological themes of the Vulgate cycle. And it also is written often in a humorous and playful way. There are dropped elements, the ominous visions of demons and angels and Christ appearing out of the grail, all of that is gone. It's metaphysically very pared back. And in comparison, the Vulgate cycle appears very overwrought. Right? There's, there's a real dramatic split in style, as well as, of course, the dramatic representation of the Grail, not as a Eucharistic vessel, but as simply a precious stone with some sort of magical powers. The one point where it's suggested that the Grail is connected to the Eucharist and to the Passion of Christ is where it's explained that every year on Good Friday, a Eucharistic host appears from heaven and rests upon the grail and sustains and continues its miraculous powers. So it's a very indirect suggestion there of connection to the miracle of the Eucharist and the Last Supper and the Passion of Christ. Okay, so we've gone through all of these different versions here involving Percival and Gawain and Galahad and unexpected half-brother from Arabia. What are the sort of important patterns and connections that link these stories together? What are the sort of 
apparent themes, meaningful themes that come out of these stories, and firstly, that link them together in their context of time and place. So as I said, most of these stories were written in French, then some also in German, in roughly the same time period. So what was going on in this time and place that links these stories together? Well, there's the geographic connection, firstly, the enduring connections to Flanders. The first patron who patronized Chrétien de Troyes, Comte del Graal, was the Count Philip of Flanders. Then the next Grail writer, Robert de Boron, his patron was Gautier de Montbéliard, who was not Flemish, but who did go on crusade with the Flemish group and hence almost surely knew Count Philip and other knights and nobles connected to him in Flanders. Then there is the patron of Perlisveus, which was Jean Denel, the castellan of Bruges in Flanders. So if we were to, to ask where did the story, where did the legend of the Grail first begin, the signs all point to Flanders. This is, as far as we can tell, probably originally a Flemish story. Now, others, other, other writers like Richard Barber have pointed out this connection to Flanders, but I would push it farther and say that we don't see any references to any sort of Holy Grail in any literature before these stories, before the appearance of Comte del Graal, the Histoire del Graal, and Perlisveus. And all of them have these connections to Flanders. And furthermore, what do we know about Flanders? Well, Flanders was a fairly prosperous, fairly well-populated region of the Low Countries, which was nominally under the crown of France. The upper class of Flanders largely spoke French, and for whatever reason, it seems they patronized and wanted written stories about the Grail. And what, what is the meaning of the name Flanders? Flanders means the floodplain. It was a low, flat, riverine area that prospered from the fertility of the river valleys. What does that sound like? Well, it sounds awfully reminiscent of the mysterious kingdom, uh, you know, the, the Fisher King's kingdom in the Grail stories, which is defined as a low, flat valley that lives off of the abundance of the river. So there is a, a real connection here, I think, between the mysterious kingdom at the heart of the Grail story and Flanders. But also, to be fair, it's clear that the Grail kingdom in the, the legend also has very heavy magical and mystical overtones. It seems very much like the fairy kingdom or other world, which likewise in British folklore could appear and disappear, could move, and that could become invisible, could sort of cloak itself at will, right? The fairy kingdom is understood as sort of a parallel world coexisting with our world, but one that can only be seen at certain times and then vanishes. So I think you can see the, the Grail kingdom, the, or Corbenic, as it's called in some versions, is thematically reminiscent of this fairy kingdom, but geographically is strangely reminiscent of Flanders, which I think seems to be the homeland of the Grail story. Okay, now what about temporally? What about the time period when the story emerged in the late 1100s through the early 1200s? What was going on that could, that could link 
these different versions of the story together. Well, as I'll talk about a bit probably later, there was a great debate going on over the nature of the Eucharist, right? This central sacrament of Christian worship, where a clergy person consecrates the bread and wine and presents them to be shared among the worshipers as the body and blood of Christ. There was a dispute between literal and metaphorical understandings of the bread and wine, and particularly the bread, which is what congregants shared among themselves. And the question was, does the bread actually become the body of Christ, or does it symbolically represent the body of Christ? And so stories about the vessel that supposedly held the Eucharistic bread at the Last Supper, when this sacrament was first instituted, probably says something. It's probably making some sort of comment or statement about how to understand the Eucharist. But I won't get into what the argument might be about what it's trying to say. But clearly, this was something people were thinking about, they were arguing about. And the Grail stories are in some way part of that conversation. Now, the other historical context going on at this time, which has not been pointed out remarkably, as far as I have ever seen, is that this period, the end of the 12th century, was the height of the crusading movement. This is the time when the activity of crusading was integrated into the life of the Western nobility and really much of Western Christian society. It had become a regular part of that civilization. And the patrons that I mentioned, such as Count Philip, Gautier de Montbéliard, Jean de Nel, they were connected not just geographically through Flanders, but they were connected by their crusading activity. Gautier de Montbéliard and Jean de Nel went together on the Fourth Crusade. Robert de Boron probably went with Gautier to the Holy Land and to Cyprus. As I said, there is textual evidence suggesting that he went as a, a servant of the crusade as well. And Hermann I, the patron of Wolfram von Eschenbach in Germany, he went on the German crusade several years before that in 1197 to 98. And Eschenbach, as I said, actually refers to the grail keepers at the castle as Templars, which you know, may not literally mean the Templars with a capital T, but it certainly is very evocative and would have evoked similarities to the crusading order. So this persistent connection between the Holy Grail legend and crusading, as far as I'm aware, has not been explicitly addressed. And maybe that's because sort of popular theories and commentaries have often claimed a direct Templar connection to a supposed real Holy Grail, that there was an actual literal physical Holy Grail and that the Templar order with a capital T possessed it. And I think maybe that has sort of poisoned the well and made people shy away from talking about this connection. But in, in my view, it's an undeniably strong pattern. Okay, now what about the star of the show, the Holy Grail itself? What do we learn about its natures and its properties as it's developed and presented in the medieval romances? Well, as I said, Grail is almost a new coinage. Actually, I should say, properly speaking, the word 
used in French in these romances is Graal, G-R-A-A-L. And that actually is a new coinage that was not seen before prior to Chrétien de Troyes' story. Now, we can guess with a pretty good confidence of what it was intended to mean and refer to. It probably comes from the medieval Latin word gradale, which was used to refer to a wide, shallow dish or bowl. And that might in turn come from the Greek krater, or sort of a, a platter for, for carrying offerings. And it seems that this word gradale was used in Catalan, in the, the language in northeastern Spain around Barcelona, just to refer to a sort of high-value, large, wide dish. And then also it seems it passed into southern French, into Occitan and Provençal French as Grasal or Grasal. And the Holy Grail, the Graal, probably is a slight adjustment into a northern French form which maybe had passed into the language in Northern French at that time, but we don't know. And this Graal that appears in the romances, it's repeatedly described as carrying the consecrated host, the Eucharistic bread. And in the Vulgate cycle, at the great culmination of the Vulgate cycle, Christ says also that it held the, la the lamb at the Last Supper. And so it, in this way, it unites and links together these two things, the sacrificial Passover lamb and the sacrificial body of Christ as represented by the bread. But there's a lot of ambiguity too. Sometimes the grail is said to take on various different forms and sometimes it's described as being, quote, like a chalice. So Galahad in the Vulgate cycle sees visions of a child and Christ crucified and this also is similar to common descriptions at the time of visions that people had when viewing communion chalices. chalices. So it's somehow similar to a chalice linked in some way religiously to chalices. And increasingly as time goes on, it's likened more and more to a chalice. It's also increasingly said to have a Samite cloth covering it, draped over it. And this too was done with communion chalices. So this, this links it more, again, to the chalice, to the sacramental wine, and it also adds to the air of mystery. You can't even look at it directly. It's under this veil. So the grail is clearly associated with both, with, in some ways, with the bread and the wine. But generally, in terms of its plain appearance, it is a wide, open food dish with a foot and with a paten or lid to cover it. At first, in the early stories, it's not generally called the Holy Grail, as I said. Chrétien at one point refers to it as such a holy thing, but only once, and it's unclear what he means by this. Is it not necessarily connected to the Last Supper or the Passion? That is left open. And Robert de Boron just calls it a grail or a rich grail, even as he does link it to the Last Supper and to Christ. And finally, only Perlis Veus and the Vulgate Cycle explicitly call it Holy Grail. And this is the term, of course, that has stuck, such that the two words are almost inseparable. The power and sanctity of the Grail is generally in line with beliefs in the Middle Ages about holy relics. Right? So objects that are somehow connected to the lives and miracles of the saints or to Christ himself. 
And the Grail, in a lot of ways, the cult of the Grail can be seen to resemble that around other relics that were linked to Christ, such as the Shroud of Turin, which was long venerated in medieval Italy, and the True Cross. And many places all around Christendom believed that they had pieces of the True Cross. So in that way, it's like other holy relics. It also, in, additionally, it incorporates veneration of the precious blood. So there were places around Europe that believed that they had small vials or bottles with tiny drops of Christ's blood from the cross. And so that was also an object of veneration. And that then gets incorporated into the Grail story, mainly through the lance, right? The lance is the thing that bears the actual blood of Christ. And holy relics were often seen as healing, both both physically and spiritually, so that's not unusual. And they attracted pilgrims and offerings. And that is important here in this context because you could see the whole Grail quest, I think you should see the Grail quest itself, as a pilgrimage or as the ultimate pilgrimage to a holy relic. But there's also something more specific and peculiar about the Grail, particular properties that it has that make it unique. It actually produces tangible food. There are repeated stories of these grail feasts where people actually eat food that is somehow magically called forth by the grail. It provides for the prisoner knights in Saras in the Vulgate cycle to the point that they're actually able to live off of it for months at a time. It also brings about a sense of spiritual joy and comfort that's seen such as in the passages that I cited about the Grail Fellowship in Robert de Boron's cycle, and it's emphasized again in many later encounters. And that also is not un unusual for holy relics so far as it goes, but in the Grail story, it has reached it to such a level of intensity, to such a fever pitch, that Galahad goes straight into a sort of overwhelming ecstatic state and wants to die and immediately goes to heaven. And that, as I said, becomes the culmination of the whole Arthur cycle. So it's, it's a sort of spiritual completeness, a spiritual fulfillment to the point that one just escapes the bonds of earthly life entirely. Also, as I said, the Grail seems to have a kind of life of its own. It can move and appear at will in different places. It appears to Percival in the woods. It appears in the jail to heal Lancelot. And it seems to appear at the round table at Camelot during Pentecost. So it has this sort of moving, acting will, which, which allows it to play the same sort of role as the Holy Spirit itself. Remember, Pentecost is the holiday where the Holy Spirit descended upon and guided the apostles. And here in the Vulgate cycle, the Grail is doing that to the Knights of the Round Table. It also, in itself, it seems to behave and to have a nature like the fairies of the other world, a thinking, acting entity that can appear and vanish and that is fickle, that judges, that rewards and punishes. And that's, again, especially emphasized in the Vulgate cycle. It can strike people blind and dumb. It is unclear because the Grail doesn't speak per se. It's unclear how this happens. Is this a conscious action to sort of strike down those who approach the Grail who are unworthy? Or is it a sort of automatic reaction to the overwhelming power of the Grail's presence? And it implies the question about the Fisher King and his kingdom. Is it barren because 
the grail is intentionally punishing it in some way. Is this, is this just uh, an accident of, of events? Is this an unfortunate consequence of someone overstepping their bounds or having an affair outside of marriage? Or is it the grail choosing to inflict this sort of cursed state on the kingdom, which it will then lift once uh, it meets the right knight? Very unclear. And the grail, as the stories go on, the grail comes to have a liturgical role. The later romances show it being used in a special mass, which is of an unclear nature. So the grail service is prepared by angels, with angels bearing the objects. And furthermore, it's connected always with the lance. There is a sort of marriage, you could say, between them. It's connected with the lance. The lance sometimes is treated as an equal relic in some stories, and you get this sort of parallelism of Gawain uh, attaining the lance and Percival the grail. But usually it's understood to be somehow secondary to the grail. And there's a suggestion of some kind of complementarity, and as I'll comment on more later, a sort of sexual marital symbolism between the grail and the lance. But the grail is somehow higher. It's somehow the, the more ultimate holy relic. Okay, and as for the stories, the way they're written, their themes, what are these distinguishing differences of the Grail legend that set these stories apart from other Arthurian and chivalric romances? They have spiritual and moral overtones. Comparatively, they have less adventure, less combats, no battles really, except arguably in the Vulgate cycle between Percival and his evil uncle. And you could see many parts of the Grail stories as really criticisms of knighthood and chivalry, cautions against being caught up in the excitement of war and adventure in favor of the, the spiritual life. They are exceptionally enigmatic and mysterious, clear implications of hidden meanings. They center around a mysterious object and a question that must be asked about the object. You know, defeating a dragon, for instance, is just a, a kind of secondary episode along the way. It's this question that is so central, and it seems to point towards the importance of curiosity, the quest for truth, and the cup or dish, I would argue, is, is perfectly fitted to this theme and this symbolic role, because a cup or a dish can be taken to represent rarefied knowledge something that is precious, that is kept hidden from view. So uh, a cup like a chalice or a covered dish like a grail with a lid contains and protects something which it partly conceals as well at the same time. And the final apotheosis of Galahad is when he is able to look directly into the grail. So it sort of gives you this, this simple, mentally visualizable image of something secret that one tries to to view and uncover. And there are all these sub suggestions of possible hidden meanings and heavy symbolism. The religious symbolism, of course, the connections to Christ. The symbolism, furthermore, of fishing. And this is a really important theme that I want to point out that I haven't seen really brought forth before. The king is called the Fisher King, and somehow this activity of living off of fish is sustaining his whole sort of barren, suffering kingdom. 
And the implication is that because the land is infertile, they instead have to live off of fish from the water. And you may know fish is often used as a symbol of Christ. Even the, the icon of the fish is often used for Christ. And it can be taken to represent Christ living off of the faith of his followers in the way that the fish lives in the water. Fish are also often used as symbols of souls. Christ in the New Testament is seen gathering together his first disciples from among fishermen, and he promises them, I will make you fishers of men. And the fish also is explicitly used as a symbol of the soul in Robert de Boron's cycle. So when he's describing the early Grail Fellowship around Joseph of Arimathea, one of those followers, Petrus, whom I quoted from before, Petrus describes the feeling of being near the grail, and he does it with a metaphor, and he says, quote, it gives such joy and delight to those who can stay in its presence that they feel as elated as a fish escaping from a man's hands into the wide water. And I think that image is such a beautiful encapsulation of the sense of liberation, of, of being freed from danger, being freed from a trap, and then swimming free. And the question is, freed from what? You know, freed from sin, maybe? This is about grace, redeeming someone from sin, freedom from evil, from danger, freedom maybe from mortality, from the trap of death. But there are clearly multiple resonances here, pulled together by this enigmatic story of the Fisher King. And as I said, there's the complex sexual symbolism, which is most obvious when it comes to the lance, which is a phallic symbol. And the grail dish can be seen then as complementary, as a yonic symbol, complementing the phallic symbol of the lance. And each one is connected in its different way to virility and to fertility, and hence to the perpetuation of life. The Fisher King is, uh, is lame because he was wounded in the thigh. And as I mentioned, that is often used in the Middle Ages as a euphemism for the genitals and hence the loss of sexual ability. And as I said, Wolfram actually explicitly says it was an injury to his genitals. And so the healing of the Fisher King is not just the healing of his personal health and vitality, but also of his virility and his ability to carry on the dynasty which is at an end unless Percival can step in and replace him. And the land, by extension, is infertile. And this is a theme that also grows and develops through the tales. The land is infertile. It's a wasteland or a wilderness. And asking the question of the grail specifically brings the land back to life and hence restores fertility to the land. So in this way, you can see, a, again, a, a, a complementarity, a sort of mirror image between the king who must have his virility restored and the land that must have its fertility restored. And the grail in this way, arguably, is a metaphor for the land. The lance represents the, the ruler, the male ruler, his phallus. The grail represents the land. And it draws, the, the, gale, the grail is associated with femininity, with fertility, with St. Mary. It is carried through the grail procession by a maiden, like Mary. And in the Vulgate cycle, 
the final grail mass, when we are told explicitly about a Eucharistic mass with the grail, it's called a mass of the mother of God. So it's a mass that is dedicated to Mary. So you can see the complementarity of the grail and the lance and the linking of the lance and the grail symbolizing the, um, a marriage, right? Not, not, not only a literal marriage of a man and a woman, but also the symbolic, the spiritual marriage of the ruler and the country which are mutually protective and sustaining. And this is finally also realized then visibly in the Vulgate cycle when the lance is used to drip blood into the grail, which I think you can see as a sort of spiritualized sexual union. Okay, and the last symbol, which I, is really, I think, hiding in plain sight, which I haven't seen anyone comment on much that I want to expose, is the name of the original grail hero, Percival, which of course in, in the French it's Perceval. And as, as others like Richard Barber have pointed out, there's clearly uh, an implication here. The name is composed of two French words, Perceval, pierces valley, right? So it can be taken to mean the, the knight who pierces the valley, right? And again, the Grail Castle is set in a low, flat valley, which echoes the shallow, wide, open dish of the Grail. And Percival is the one who enters successfully into the valley and then achieves the Grail itself. At the same time, there, as I said, there's this sexual undertone of sexual symbolism to the land and to the Grail. So you can understand the, the if you understand the Grail as similar to the female body or the symbolically the fertility of the female body then pierces the valley need i say more <laughs> there's again this this sort of veiled reference i think to sexual union uh, and then thirdly i would also point out beyond that the name perceval can be taken to mean pierces the valley but it also sounds extremely close to another phrase voile means veil. So it can, I think, you know, with a slight emendation, if you say, well, it sounds like percevoir, that means the one who pierces the veil. And piercing the veil is a metaphor that's used all through esoteric literature and philosophy to mean seeing behind the appearances of things, seeing through to the true underlying reality. And specifically to learning the actual meanings, the secrets behind symbols and codes. So this, I think, finally, you know, in my view, it kind of puts the cherry on top of what is so distinctive about the character of the Holy Grail legend, its mysterious symbolisms, all of which are reasons and motivations, I think, for the very complicated, divided, often ambivalent reactions to the Grail myth. So whereas the medieval church often gave sort of stamps of approval and canonicity to stories of holy relics, the grail myth was shunned by the church, which probably saw the whole thing as suspect. And that sort of ambivalence, that sort of wariness, that there may be some sort of unorthodox meaning, that there is too much reference to sex or violence or just something unsavory about the Grail legend, that mood of skepticism continued for centuries. And even as the Arthur mythology 
was revived and became popular again in the early 1800s and was drawn into this new fad of neo-medievalism. And the grail legends were still treated as highly suspect. And sometimes the whole grail story early on in the 1800s, the whole grail story was often completely excluded from the Arthur mythos, especially versions for children. And in the early editions, the early reprintings of Mallory's Les Morts d'Arthur in the early 1800s, the editors cut the grail section out completely. And this can be taken as shocking because in the Middle Ages, we know the grail legend was very quickly adopted into the matter of Britain and became integral to the story of Arthur and the Round Table. It's the culmination of the story but it was taken out often in these 19th century versions before it eventually was allowed in again. And the Grail legend, as we see in the Middle Ages, it came to serve as the overriding motivation, the crowning achievement that the round table aimed at. And in this way, I think you can see it gave a certain philosophical message to the matter of Britain. The idea that worldly order and peace as exemplified in Camelot, worldly order and peace is a mere vehicle towards spiritual attainment. What, you might say, is the point of an earthly utopia? According to this view, the point of an earthly utopia is to lead the way towards a heavenly paradise, of which it is only an imperfect shadow. So the, the quest is the quest from an earthly city to a heavenly city. And hence, the matter of Britain in this way, I think, is a high expression of the medieval worldview, which also is reflected in theology, the idea of grace completing nature. The, the temple, the round table of Camelot, is not opposed to and in conflict with heavenly perfection, but rather it needs grace. It needs this mystery of grace in order to complete it and elevate it. And so while it can be taken to make sense more or less in that medieval worldview, it's still very morally and theologically ambiguous and hence suspect and often treated with ambivalence and caution. The story was never canonized by the Western church. It is not considered a proper Christian doctrine. And so it has had a very complicated history with a lot of ups and downs and a lot of evolution until it became I would say the much more sort of cynical myth about power and temptation that we tell today in the modern world. So what I hope to do then in the, the next lecture is discuss how the myth has evolved and changed, taken on a different meaning, and the different ways that people have tried to interpret and uncover the hidden meaning behind the symbol. So thank you very much, and again, if you can help to keep these coming. I do not produce nearly as much patron-only material as a lot of other podcasters do. I want most of my material to be out there and free for the public if they want it. And again, if you can help to keep them coming and you want to hear my patron-only materials, please go to my Patreon page and support at any level, even if it's just a dollar. Thank you. Thank you.